0: Hello, I'm Chris Mooney, a fellow artist manager, and I will be your guide through Tough Love, Adventures, and Artist Management. Today, we continue our series on pivots, but for this episode, we'll be speaking with someone who shifted out of his role in A&R and into artist management. Joel Mark now manages The Faint, Soul Asylum, Liz Fair, and the John Coltrane Estate, among others. But before that, he signed artists as diverse as Creed and Cedar Ross. In our chat, we touch upon how diversity inspires ideas and how chance detours often lead to new opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Joel.
1: Great. Well, my name is Joel Mark, and I work at the YMU Music Group uh, Management Company in Los Angeles, and I work with the John Coltrane Estate and also out the Alice Coltrane Estate's uh the uk artist james arthur Soul asylum liz fair vice tone rac the faint uh a lot of a lot of great music
0: yeah that's a full plate for sure um i was curious what's YMU stand for what is the
1: how ha- did you come to that well it stands for you me and us was the idea oh it's, that's awesome yeah so that. it's it's a it's a pretty big management company as far as management goes. We're over 300 employees. Um, oh, wow. Mainly London and Los Angeles, although also New York, uh, DC, and Manchester. And it's management of talent. So it, mm-hmm. I'm in the US music division, although I have one client that I share with the UK music. And then there's all kinds of management, you know, writers and directors, athletes writer, you know, literary writers, um, really everything, even a business management division, the the idea just being elite talent, uh, we manage them, whatever it is. And what we're seeing a lot of influencers and that kind of stuff. And really the idea is that artists today, some just do their music and that's fantastic, but a lot of people Mm -hmm. do more than music. Someone like Liz Fair, she has she records she tours she has a book deal with random house she did a book last year she's going to have a book next year she did a mm. tv a tv deal um and she's going to do a podcast and so you start to realize oh my goodness everyone's doing so many different things as managers we need to support that and maybe it's maybe it's best for some artists to have outside agencies for their other businesses, you know, an outside literary agent, but maybe it's better to have a literary agent in-house. Uh, yeah. so, so we provide all of that. Or if someone, you know, we do a lot of, we're doing a lot of film and TV work and it's it's in-house. We could develop programming and, and sell it and do everything right in-house. So it's it's fun and it's different. And it's, it's you know, a modern contemporary concept of artist management.
0: Yeah, no, I, I love everything about that. Um, and I imagine as a manager, it gives you an opportunity to learn a lot. I've always fa- been fascinated by the parallels, if you will, between different entertainment divisions, whether it be film, TV, uh, literary, or whatnot. The book publishing industry versus, you know, record industry in particular, like how all that aligns, and, and just having. The ability to tap into a little bit of that, uh, I'm sure, is probably inspiring and interesting to have an opportunity to have a different perspective, you know, because otherwise we get stuck in our own silos sometimes, and it makes it hard to be creative.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and it's, you know, being stuck in the silo is why I joined a company, What? because I was a manager on my own. And as you know, it's tough to be on your own, and it's tough to just be in your own brain all the time, you know, to be... in an office every day with one or two other people going through the same issues and coming up with the same answers. And I loved the idea of being around other managers where we could, hey, you could walk down the hall and say, hey, how, how did you handle that issue in Belgium last year? What was it again? Oh yeah, well, just have your local tax person handle it. You don't need, your US tax person's a waste of time. I got someone, someone there that can help you with that. If I had been on my own, a Belgian tax issue, that's two months to sort out, right?
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always better to have smarter people in the room or close by that you can tap into with knowledge of that. And yeah, as managers, that's hard to hard to cultivate that kind of um, camaraderie and opportunity, really, at times. We, we have a tendency just to kind of, like you said, kind of live in our own little world um, and try to take all those challenges on when you know there's probably a, a better answer out
1: there at our fingertips yeah and it's the business is changing so fast even pre-covid obviously this year the changes are you can't keep up with them but um or, or we don't even know what the changes are going to be into next year and beyond but right uh, with the advent of streaming it's changed everything, and just the way each streaming sur- the way each streaming service deals with music changes so frequently, or the way the social media companies handle the way they work with artists, or what algorithms work on Facebook, or which algorithm you know how things hit the mm-hmm. algorithm the right way on Twitter. That stuff is all changing so fast that it really helps me to have other people around who could say, "Oh, you want to have a song connect on TikTok. Here's what we did." for that kid we're managing as opposed mm-hmm. to just looking at this thing called TikTok and thinking, what how do I deal with that? You know, what <laughs> is it? Can I if right. I ignore it, if I ignore it, is it gonna go away? No? Okay, let's deal with it.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because the the artists that you rattled off and and we'll get into some of your history too and a variety of artists you've worked with, they're very diverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, they kind of run a gamut. So I imagine that is probably, it presents opportunities, but also some challenges because it's not just in one lane. You know, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about a numerous, you know, array of artists or of, uh, audiences that you have to figure out. What makes them tick and how to tap into
2: them?
1: Yeah, it's you know what I've always been that way. I've always just been into tons of different kinds of music, and there's never been any one kind of music that's inspired me or driven me. So it makes sense that uh, that I would. To me, it makes sense that I would work with all different kinds of music. You know, before we jumped on Mm -hmm. the the phone, I was listening to Keith Jarrett. You know, and before that, I was listening (laughs) to Dolly Parton. It's like you just. I'm into so much and I want to be able to work with so many different things that, yeah, my, the stuff I'm working on now, it's all over the place, but the me- the mechanics of human nature are the same, right? The mm. way people react is the same, even if the music is different. And what I've found over the years is some of the same things that you might do in dance music work in rock music or work right. with uh, jazz. It's, People are the same. Human nature is the same. We're not. We're changing, but it's very slow. So, I think that yeah, the the businesses are different. The people that you deal with at the various companies might be completely different promoters for a DJ than for a rock band. Um, but the the way the human mind reacts to marketing is the same. Hmm, interesting. On a, yeah. On a base level.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating uh, insight-wise for sure. Well, let, let's dig a little bit back into your history because I wasn't, I mean, you and I have known each other for 15 plus years, but I didn't know, I don't think I knew that you started out as a musician and had such an eclectic, you know, start before you got into the music industry.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, that's, that's, I just have loved music for a long time. Everyone on your show says the same thing, right? Everyone's like, oh, I've just loved music since I was a kid. And it was, I played music, you know, just because I loved it and I just wanted to play. And I settled on guitar. And then as soon as I got to college, I just, you know, you show up in the dorm room with a guitar and everyone assumes you're a guitar player. So I started a, <laughs> like a band my first day of college. And You know, when you're in a, I went to college in Wisconsin, in in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, really? Yeah. You could just start a band and you could get gigs because you exist. You know, especially back then when I was in school, I don't know how it is now, but you could go to the person that books the club and say, Hey, we're a new band. Do you want to book us? And they'll say, sure. What are you doing three weeks from Friday? They need people. And (laughs) And then I realized, oh, if this club in Madison is like that, I wonder about that club in La Crosse or that club in Milwaukee or Mm -hmm. Eau Claire. And before you know it, you're just every weekend traveling around the Midwest playing shows, um, which was great. It was such a great way to learn. First, I just loved it, you know. And then I just learned how to, book bands you know so that that led to me starting a booking agency when I graduated from school I mean before that I booked bands that came to Madison and I worked in a record store and I worked at the um anything I could do in music I just did it I was uh, at the record store I answered the phone and I got hired to be a college rep for one of the you know for BMG um and then when I graduated I thought okay cool I'm going to move back to Chicago where I'm from and I'll get a job at one of the independent agencies. Um, or I could work at a record company, whatever it is. And you know, it was like five phone calls into that Monday, no one was hiring. That was it. There mm-hmm. were, you know, there were three or four agencies and one label. And so, I um, I ended up having to start my own booking agency to um, to support myself because I no one would hire me. So, but that led to me playing more music you know i was booking tours for people and if someone needed someone to fill in on a show i could fill in or or whatever so i I played a ton i booked a ton of shows and then i um i ran that agency for about six years i think um oh wow booked tons of bands you know mainly just stuff that i loved i didn't care if anyone else liked it in fact mostly i booked bands that i wanted to see that weren't going to tour if i didn't book them not a great strategy for making money to book bands that don't have any fans, but, um, but it's how I did it. And, but then some of them turned, you know, I booked this band morphine that got to, you know, that got to a pretty big level. Oh, and they were on Ryko disc, uh, you know, and, um, uh, I booked Jimmy Eat World and Modest Mouse, uh, Silkworm. Like I booked some bands that went on to be popular, but, um, Mm -hmm. But none of them were popular when I worked with them, um, which was which was fine. And then I, a band that I was in, was signed to a label called Grass Records. Um, we, oh, okay. it was, it, I mean, it, I wasn't just in the band; it was me and my best friends. We made a band. We recorded it. We recorded ourselves. Uh, you know, we bought an eight-track and a mixing board, and we recorded everything in our house. Um, and we got a deal with this label called Grass. And the first record was went fine, and then um, we were getting ready to hand in the second record, and our a and person was let go.
2: Mm.
1: So I went to New York from Chicago to deliver the record because I couldn't get them on the phone. It was just weird. It was a weird vibe wow. at that label. And while I was there, they hired me to take her job. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. What a story. <laughs> so I did a and at this label called Grass, and it was – You know, um, I think Brainiac was already gone by then. Timmy had already passed away, which was so, so sad. Mm -hmm. Um, The Wrens were on the label. um, And I don't know, it was was a lot of indie bands, some of which were great and a few of which were not great. Mm -hmm. And they were all short-term deals. And we ended up changing the name of the label to Wind Up. Um, and so Grassworkers just became Wind Up Records. And then we oh. started r- with the original idea of, you know, signing, we could be the US label for cool UK labels. You know, we could be a yeah. US importer. We could do the owner and I both had a bunch of like free jazz records that we loved that were out of print. We could put them back in print. It was that kind <laughs> of a conversation. Yeah. And what ended up happening was we signed uh, Creed.
0: Hmm. And, and it went a different direction <laughs> and it went in a
1: very different direction and it was you know one of those things that we got the the demo it wasn't even a demo it was a record that they had self-released and it was selling 500 copies a week in just in tallahassee
0: wow and that's insane
1: so we did the math and we said okay well if we took this over you know we could sell we could probably build this up to get fifty thousand records okay cool and then they got on the radio in Orlando. Oh my gosh, now we're selling 500 records a week in Orlando. Oh, okay. Well, we start doing the math and we realized, man, we could probably sell 150,000 copies of this record. Let's sign them. We'll get it remixed. So it sounds better. Um, cause it also had been recorded in their bedrooms on a bunch of eight. Really? Yeah. It was just a very, wow. they had a producer who was brilliant. Um, but very homegrown and, um, The recording, you know, was was a home recording. So Mm. that was the goal: was to sell 150,000 units and hope to keep the label going for another year, so we could finally get into those Albert Ayler records that we were trying to track down. (laughs) um, You know, and, and maybe you know, try to be the U.S. label for you know, two pure records or something. You know, that those were the goals. But it just kept selling and selling and selling. And then we did another record. And then we just signed a again we signed some good bands and some really bad bands and then when the second creed record came out i my wife and i were just done you know we were just over it and so i <laughs> i i quit the day it hit the charts wow which was a really auspicious day to quit um, because i figured how, you know being an AR guy if you have the number one record of the country you could probably get another job so we let our apartment go we both quit our jobs and um, I got a, a lawyer to help me find a new job and we traveled. We just, we, you know, mm. I've been working seven days a week for three or four years at the label. Um, at that point, it, it, uh, you know, AR was a seven day a week job because you're in the st- mm. I was I was the kind of AR guy that was in the studio with the bands. I would sit down with a guitar sometimes, you know. And oh, sing, wow. You know, I was very. I came at it from having just been in bands and just been in studios all day and night. And so I took it from that approach. And it was, you know, we were both a little burned. So we took this vacation. Um, And we never even had a honeymoon after we got married. So we took this vacation. We went to visit some friends in Europe. And at the time, the cheaper tickets were through Iceland. So we stopped off Mm -hmm. in Iceland for a few days. Um, didn't know anyone there just wandered around of course went to the record stores bought all the local records just because it's kind of what I always did in those days had a stack of cds and then we were on the the next flight and I put in one of the cds and I felt like I wasn't even sitting down I literally felt this music had
2: lifted
1: me me out of my my economy seat on the plane and um And it just moved me. And so I played her the record and she was freaking out saying this is the most beautiful record she'd ever heard. And so I had to make a decision. Like, was I going to accept this job that, that I was about to sign a contract for, or was I going to quit my job, not take the job, start a label just to release this band from Iceland. Mm. And it, I was so far down the line with the contract at that point that we said, yeah, let's just take the job and then I'll sign this band to the label. So I go to MCA Records, um, which did we, I don't know, it might have been called Geffen by the time you and I met. I think we had changed it. I think it had become Geffen Records by then.
0: It was still, we were right. So yeah, the, the band I co-managed that we connected on initially, Venus Home, they were signed by mm. Brian Long when he was still at MCA. Right. And it by the time the record came out, it was on Geffen. So it was like right as all that was shifting.
1: Right. Right, that's right. I do. I remember that. So, so when I got there on my first day, you know, the head of the company, this great guy, introduces me. I don't remember it was the Ann staff or something. This is you know Joel. You might know this band he used to work with called Creed. And he's going to sign lots of big rock bands for us, and I'm sitting there with this Cigaro CD in my pocket right. that I had bought in a record store. At this point, I've been traveling, and it was like, you know, the edges were torn and it was you know and he said hey do you have a minute let's go talk I'm like it's my first day of course I have a minute and so I go sit in his (laughs) office and he said so what do you you know, what are you going to do at the label you know do you have a bunch of hit bands in your hip pocket what do you want to sign and I said actually yes I have a band that I want to sign and I think they are the best band in the world right now he said sounds well best band in the world we better sign them I said great all right he said, so how do we do it? I said, well, they're on tour. They're going to be playing in Paris in a couple of weeks. We could go to the Paris show and uh and then have try to get a meeting. And he said, Oh, I'm going to be in Paris anyway. We have this artist, Leona Ness, and that's the only show I could go to on the tour. Um, you should meet her also. I'm like, okay, great, we'll go to Paris, meet Leona Nest and we'll go see this band. He's like, "What's the band? Tell me about them." I'm like, "Well, they're from Iceland. They sing in a made-up language. Um, but trust me, they're the best band in the world. I think they they actually just played with Radiohead and and they're they're a better band." It's
2: like, "Yeah.
1: Oh, okay, I'm uh, in." And he was in, which is crazy that you know, they wanted Nickelback and they got uh Sig- Ross. Sigur Rós, which is not even remotely close to what they wanted, but um, it was really incredible of him to to be supportive.
0: Yeah. You know, and you and know, supportive. that's one of the things that that attracted us to MCA is just the eclectic nature of the roster. It didn't really it seemed very forgive me for saying this, but in hindsight, I don't know. It just it seemed very not generic but vanilla, like it didn't have an identity like a Geffen or You know gosh a ton of other labels at the time you know but it was very eclectic you know i'm thinking about the hip-hop stuff like uh yeah roots you know which had a strong history there and obviously yeah yeah exactly and then they put out just uh, some really interesting reissues it it felt there was a culture there even if it was maybe a little spread out that you you realized uh what and what was, gosh, I'm forgetting now. Was it Fru Fru Image and Yes. Yeah. yeah project, you know, so there was so much going on there that was kind of under the radar, but super cool and, and starting to bubble up. That it just, you know, for, for an electronic band like Venus Hum, it was like, wow, this actually kind of makes sense, even though it's a little off the beaten path of what was considered kind of cool at the moment. Um, but Sigur Ross obviously was was a whole different you know, I mean they're a genre unto themselves, it seems which, like. And
1: which is always the best. And, you know, that's always yeah. the best. it's it, it it you know, you're you're never gonna lose as a A and R person or a manager if you work with an artist that is their own thing. You know, that's blazing right. a new trail. You might not they might not sell any records, but you can't replace them. You know what I mean? If you right. if you really like the new Ariana Grande record you could also listen to another pop record you don't need it to right. be her in my opinion i'm sure she has millions of fans that would just dis- that think she's the best in the world and i respect that but for the most part mm. with pop music it's interchangeable that's the point you know it's disposable right that's the point that's that's what's so great about pop music and dance music is that it is disposable it's this awesome rush and it's brief and then you replace it with something else you know mm. and dance music is great because it's still based on the culture of every Friday night, every DJ is looking for the newest track to play. And so you have all these producers making new tracks every week. And that innovation in itself is, is, is fantastic. But, but yeah, at MCA, it was really such a fantastic place because of Jay Boberg who was running it. And Gary Ashley who was the head of the A&R department who just, you know, I could go to them with some pretty weird ideas and they would figure out how all right let's try it let's try to make this work even if mm-hmm. it was you know a band that didn't sing in english and in, in fact we had <laughs> jay and i worked on cafe Tacuba. you know who did not sing in english oh, they, right. you know yeah. and really you know did and they ended up connecting in the us but not in the same way they connected in, in mexico you know, where they were mm. just massive, like number one record, number one single and album and 40,000 tickets in Mexico city. They'd ever wow. that big in the U S but, um, yeah, th- 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 those guys were fantastic and just up for it, you know? Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, so, so, so that's the story. So that was an MCA. And then they, um, one day they decided to change the name to Geffen and, I think Jay was just too good so they let him go and some other people came in to run it. And while I was at Geffen I got to work with Sonic Youth who had been one of my favorite bands.
2: You know, wow. since I was a
1: kid. That was yeah. incredible. And then oh and then playing guitar even when I was there I always you know if I was interested in a band like I was trying to sign John Cale to MCA. And so we had a demo budget and we recorded these demos but I wasn't real. I wasn't a producer you know I just put some people together and played with him and it was a little barren so Mm. I just took the files home and just played all the extra instruments that weren't there that day oh wow that's so that's (laughs) how I ended up playing with John Cale was I just I just had to do it because there was just
2: yeah
1: it was there wasn't enough stuff on that record so we didn't I didn't end up getting to sign John he ended up signing with EMI um, but they use those tracks, you know. I mean, really, it's, wow! It's crazy. It, he's one of my favorite artists of all time. I mean,
0: yeah. I um, mean, how can you not admire the body of work and just you know singular voice of what he does? Yeah, uh, and
1: still does. You know, he. Yeah, just, that's he, true. You know, still, he. he, he I, I really love artists that are always looking forward, and he is mm-hmm. always looking forward, um, which is amazing. Um, and that and that was it. I don't really do that anymore. I don't bring my own. I don't really play anymore. So, uh, but back in those days, I would just always have a guitar with me, and if it was needed, I would add it. But um, you know, not not any longer. Which is <laughs> if everyone's benefit. Um, yeah. So anyway, Thank so you. so then, and I so I did the label thing for a long time, like ten years of doing ANR, and it was great. But then my contract was up at around the same time that Sigur Ros's deal was up and Sonic Youth's mm. deal was up. Like we were all kind oh, of wow. ending our deals at the same time. So it really made for a good time to make a break and do something different. Um, and my wife and I had already started a label putting out Icelandic instrumental music. I'd be over there working with Sigur Ros and find all these records that weren't getting released outside of, really outside of Reykjavik even. So we didn't, oh, wow. we would get the American rights and we put them out and it was really really fun um and then I I started managing the faint um and I just became a manager overnight you know and then I just (laughs) it just was I was just really lucky it was a good time to become a manager during the great recession when so many people were just leaving the business and Records weren't selling, and tours weren't selling, so no one was making any money, but people needed help. so I right. put together a really great roster quickly, and here I am,
2: yeah,
0: well, you know what what's interesting in a way, um and I you know I mentioned Brian Long earlier too, and now he manages as well. I think yeah. when I got to know you guys and a lot of different a r people that have kind of gone on to to do artist management, it feels like. In a in a lot of ways post record label a and r gig management is a natural progression you know you have that close relationship with the artist you're working with managers already and in your case you were a musician yourself so it was kind of full circle you were obviously comfortable around the creative process but also knew what it took to take a record to market and you know support it and and get the support it needs i guess out of uh, release and, and partnerships. So it's kind of a natural progression almost, you know, to kind of back into artist
1: management yeah, as a default. It felt it felt like it at the time. And after working at a big corporation, Universal, for at that point, six or seven years, it felt great to just say, hey, I'm going to do this myself. I, I don't need to work yeah. at a big company. Although the crazy thing is, is I remember the, my first day as a manager. And I remember... The faint were on tour and it was a big tour, you know, two, 3,000 tickets. And it's a lot mm-hmm. for honestly an A&R guide to deal with because I didn't know anything really about touring at that level, but, you know, buses and lighting rental and PPAs and all this stuff and crew, you know. Um, and it was midnight and I realized, oh, wow, I just have sat here <laughs> from 8 a.m. to midnight working. Am I doing the right thing? And <laughs> it was it was just a second, and then I realized, oh, man, I have so much to do tomorrow, and I wrote down my notes and everything I wanted to get done the next day, and, you know, 7.30, got right back at it, you know. There's mm-hmm. no management is – it wasn't – it was so much more involved than I thought it was going to be. Um, but, but yeah, it, it was a natural progression from A&R, and as you said, everyone from – the ANR department at MCA, who's still in music, is now a manager. You know, Tom wow. and and Brian and myself. So it's um it's just kind of what you do, I guess, you know. Yeah. And it's still yeah. what you do as a manager because A is so different now. You know, I mm-hmm. I it's 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 just a different skill than the way we used to do it. So I am doing the same things. I'm still picking songs. I'm still putting sessions mm-hmm. together. I'm still picking producers and mixers. And, you know, that's the job of a manager now. You know, the a yeah. people don't do that, you know. So that's kind of wild. You know, I would have thought for a pop act that the – I can't believe I said act, but for a, an artist in the pop world <laughs> that you would – that the a person – and there are some, you know, we, we have a great a and um, for James Arthur – um, mm. incredible anr, and he's put all the sessions together and really insightful um, anr. But for the most part, they don't do anything actually related to the music, so that's up to the manager. Uh, so we actually employ an anr person in our office. Oh, um, really? Wow. Yeah, to book sessions, you know, both for the the UK artists coming in and then for our artists. Yeah, I mean, as you're making a pop record now, you're probably going to have. 50 60 writing sessions Uh, um it's a lot it's a lot to do so we wanted someone that that's all they were doing was putting together sessions finding songs and knowing everything that was going on in that in that part of la
0: yeah no that's interesting yeah i think um i think the other parallel to a record label in the modern era of management is that you're also artist development You know, I mean, not only do you have to like nurture the creative side and get that together, you also have to figure out how to get it to a place where anyone will pay attention to it enough, or you can find the right partners to kind of birth it into the world. It's it's really. You know, I mean, obviously a lot of this falls on the artist too. I mean, the artist has to be more involved socially and, you know, connecting with their audience and thinking from a branding perspective and a marketing perspective. I mean, it's rare that things are fully formed or so unique a la a Ross that you know it's like undeniable and they're just doing their own thing and you just shine a light on it and not that it's that easy but if you're if you're trying to just take really great music and and find a lane for it you have to do like you said all that work on the front end it's uh it's, yeah. you're wearing multiple hats <laughs> in order to do yeah. to just get it you know to a place where where people can enjoy it and notice it and hopefully fall in love
1: with it because there's so much music coming out. You know, I, ca- I can't remember, I was on a call with Amazon and they were saying something like 400,000 new tracks a month or a week or something. I mean, it's insane how much <laughs> music is coming out. I would, I should have been prepared and had the statistic ready, but it's so much music. And, and one thing we've been doing a lot of lately, which I really love is working with older groups and helping mm-hmm. them find new audiences, which has been oh, wow. really, really fun. And it's always been a thought of mine that you have to always be finding a new audience for every artist. Right. You can't just rely on your old fans because everyone's busy. You know, everyone has other stuff to do They, You know, whatever it is, we're all busy. We all And, and we all have so much new information coming at us every day. How can we make it so that people realize that the artists we work with are important to them? How can we remind them that it's important? And it's, you know I, I got to work with the french band air and they hadn't done anything in like six or seven years and we we had this oh, wow. nice long runway of months or maybe a year of just building it up before we even got any offers for them to play shows you know reissuing vinyl and doing mm-hmm. social media and you know if someone hasn't posted on facebook in three years and you post something it, it better be captivating you know yeah. and, <laughs> and we did this and we did the same thing with the john coltrane estate where where you know the facebook page has been run by the record labels well intentioned but if every post is hey there's a new record out, buy it at this link you're not going to have an audience and we were able to build up the audience on socials so that we could then at the right time present new work as it was being released you know i think the less the less you actually try to sell things the more you can sell them right is kind of the approach so we but we've been able to do that with with those two artists and with liz fair and with soul asylum and it's been and even i I don't work with them anymore but we worked with 311 for a couple years and it was great to be able to we doubled their ticket sales in two years you know they've been touring forever and you know you just you kind of get the weeds out of the garden and just show people the flowers you know
0: it's oh, a great analogy. Great way to to uh, highlight, you know, what needs to be done there. You know, in those yeah. circumstances.
1: Yeah, I think people get confused. I think so many well-intentioned people get confused on how the way to get people to react to music, in order to react to an artist, and that's a big part of what I've been trying to do. And it's not always successful, obviously, but trying to figure out ways that people you know, how can I get people to spend time with the artists that I work with? And you, you I like to start with, well, the people that are already fans, you just remind them because they forgot. Mm -hmm. You know, I (laughs) I, you just forget there's so much music. We've all had so much music in our lives. I might forget about an amazing, there was this Charles Lloyd, this jazz saxophone player, this amazing Mm -hmm. record that I loved in the early 2000s. And I forgot all about it. And I've probably listened to that record 50 times during this covid lockdown oh wow and you know it's just one of those things where you realize okay well something i found it that's what tipped me off but Mm -hmm. for other people how can we get them to find runaway train and make them remind them that they love that band
0: right yeah have that emotional connection you know from when they were whatever a teenager or in their early 20s you know gosh that's 20 years ago right or more yeah so it's just yeah it's just tapping back into that um i think you know that kind of reminds me of the the simon sinek um you know people don't buy what you do they buy why you do it you know that Mm -hmm. whole concept the emotional connection element of that um i think often gets lost when you're you know, again, using your analogy, kind of in the weeds, you know, thinking about how to market or present an artist. It's really, at the end of the day, there has to be some, uh, you know, attachment that comes out of it, whether it's reigniting it from a more of a heritage type artist and reintroducing it, or or trying to light that spark with something new. It's like, you have to have that emotional connection. Exactly. Uh, Exactly. You know, first and foremost. Um, Yeah, I mean, talking a little bit about and thinking about the pandemic, I I started, I don't typically do like end of year best of list, but mm-hmm. this year in particular, there's so many records that have meant so much more to me that have come out this year because maybe I've had more time to focus on it. I don't even know, but I'm going for more walks just to get out of the house and I'm listening to music. and there's a long list more so than in previous years of just i think pretty fantastic music that's come out that you know isn't being supported in a way it would traditionally i.e. touring or you know being able to really do the the normal connection points uh you would do in marketing a record but uh, still they're fighting their way through you know and it's like yeah, I, it's great I think
1: that's encouraging you know yeah, yeah cuz great music always does that you know great music yeah. always finds its way to the top and I think there are some people like you and I who are always looking for new music Mm -hmm. and those are almost the easiest people to reach and the easiest people to lose. And then there are some people who don't, who aren't open to new music. They just want to listen to their old stuff. You know, their brain or their ears aren't open and that's fine. I have no value judgments about either way, but I think, you know, for someone like for, for the every artist that I work with is looking forward. You know,
2: mm.
1: with Soul Sun when we did these reissue projects, he had he'd never listened to his old record. Right? He doesn't ever listen to an old record. He you know, <laughs> the last time he listens to is when it's mixed and then it's on to the next thing. And the same thing with Liz Fair. You know, Liz is always yeah. focused on the next thing. And so it's but for their fans, I don't know if they're as open to the to the to their these artists that they love are they open to the new music or not we'll find out you know interesting though with soul sign we put out the record during covid and they couldn't mm-hmm. tour and because they couldn't tour they did a lot more interviews you know there was yeah, no excuse there was no sound check there was no show oh can we plug this in at nine o'clock so you could talk to someone in japan sure 9 o'clock. i'm not doing anything at 9 a.m or 9 p.m i'm open Right. <laughs> and we actually had, they had their highest charting album in 25 years. Wow. Without the usual mechanisms of being on tour. Um, wow. Because we had to rely on other mechanisms. And it it worked, you know? And I think it's almost, I, I, I want and I could be wrong, I have no idea, but I think they got more playlists because of the press. Because literally these people making mm. these playlists, they read their Twitter feed. You know, they read right. whatever they read and the, and you know, if something is in an outlet that some of these programmers read, that enforces the work of the distributor. You know, the distributor puts in front of them and then they look in their Twitter feed, they see something from Spin. Oh my gosh, so wait, what was it? Oh yeah, 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 that's on my list. All right, cool. I'm going to put right. in this playlist. All right, what else? Oh, there's a new Bright eyes record. Oh my gosh, I'll put that in there too. And so you um I think it all works i still think with with mm-hmm. streaming it still works holistically it should. it should
0: yeah yeah so there's multiple touch points and impressions and actually like little momentum builders almost like how, how can we get you know like one thing in and of itself isn't necessarily going to move the needle but two or three things kind of begin to add up and and open up opportunities or get people to be motivated in a way the, you know i mean i think that's human nature you know going yes. back to what you were saying earlier it's like i yeah i mean and i i can be equally as guilty of that too where it's like something come come you know i know something's out but i haven't taken the time to listen to it that's the one thing that kind of i and i'd be curious to get your opinion on this really quickly uh but i being you know we're of a similar age and Going through physical formats to a digital format that you purchase to a digital format that you lease, essentially in streaming, it's just slowly dwindled away that kind of tactile, physical, tangible component to buying music. And I, I think it's hard sometimes, like when you'd walk into a store and physically buy a record, you invest in it, you know. 10 to 12 times or just infinitely more financially than you do in streaming, you know, subscription to Spotify. And you feel probably compelled to spend time with that, whether you like it or not to, you know, make a judgment on it because you spent money on it and you have some skin in the game where I know I'm guilty of, Oh, somebody has a new, whatever, Pixies have a new single out. I need to listen to that. And then I never get around to it because I don't have that same financial or emotional, um, investment in it you know but one thing's the pan- pandemic's done i think that's been really interesting is uh you know i think the only way for fans to really support artists now is like buying merch or, you know they can't go to a show and that's how they physically show their fandom in a way yeah you know so it's like it feels like there's a resurgence in that or resurgence in vinyl sales because that's replacing that a little bit and i'd be really curious to see where things fall i mean i think naturally once everyone's comfortable and we have a vaccine and you know there's no huge scare i i know for myself i'll be out every night going to see my music again because yes. i miss that yes but i do think i do think that'll be you know an interesting i mean there's never been an opportunity to, to push reset you know on uh, an industry like this i think and i just i really hope that you know people take a hold of that in a different way it's almost like we were on a trajectory with streaming where but because you don't have the physical connection and everything you know even with social media it's all removed in a way uh even though it doesn't feel like it at times it is like emotionally you're kind of removed unless uh, you know a song just resonates or an artist does with you where now hopefully the floodgates will open up a little bit you know a little bit more and and people will feel engaged by going out to see live music again yeah
1: Um, Yeah. it's a bit of a but (laughs) yeah look you're you're I, i agree with you 100%. You know, I think when I was a kid, even not like a, a, you know, I was like a little kid, I would buy one record a week. I would Mm. literally babysit on Friday nights, take the cash, go to a record store on Saturday, and I'd listen to that record all week. Right. And so all of those records, I know every single note. And then even when I worked in a record store, I worked in a record store for years, I still, you know, it's all I did, I was the worst employee because I was just listening to records there all day and all night. And people would come to the counter and be like, shut on, just a minute, just a minute. Just wait for this part. Wait for this part. Okay, I'm sorry. Can I help you? What did you need? Oh, you don't want to buy that record, it's terrible. Let me get you something better, you know. And right. <laughs> and, um, and and those connections are really, really strong. And I think with, with streaming it's it's funny because it's not just streaming; it's also festivals. You know, it's mm-hmm. w- w- as managers we love festivals because it shines such a light on your artist. You know, oh, we're playing Primavera. Oh, we're playing Coachella. Oh, we're playing Glastonbury. You know, whatever it is, and you can um, it's a great talking point. But right. if 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 people are finding about you on a playlist and they're seeing you at a at a festival. How do you make them a fan? How do you, right. you know? How do you? You have a lot of casual listeners and not a lot of listeners, and so that's something I I think about a lot. And I I was at this really interesting conference, and they asked everyone who went to the conference had to have a topic, and that was my topic: How do we make fans out of people who are so casual? You know, they're a mm. fan of Primavera, they're not a fan of Liz Fair. How do we make them a fan? And and it was it you know strangely it comes back to physical, it comes back to merch, it comes back mm-hmm. to you know because you're right you know during the lockdown I'm still buying vinyl. I'm not going to record stores, but the new Bob Dylan record, I so great I had to have it on vinyl. Because right. I needed more time with it. You know, like I I, mm-hmm. I feel like any Bob Dylan album, you could listen to any song from any Bob Dylan record ten times in a row. And you're still not going to get everything he's giving you.
0: And, right. There's a lot of density there. Yeah.
1: yeah. And it's, and this new record to me is just so good. I wanted more time. I didn't want to only listen to it streaming. I wanted to be able to sit and just focus on the sides, you know? Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and so I think there is more of that happening. As you're saying, people are buying merch to support their artists. Vinyl, we put out a, um, not we, but Rhino put out a, a, reissue of a Coltrane record of giant steps and hmm. blew through the first, they, they press as much vinyl as they thought they needed for the U S and blew out of it on the first day of the pre-orders. Oh, I mean, wow. You know, so many more people wanted that vinyl. I'm thinking, well, if you're a jazz fan, you probably have giant steps, right? Like it's, it is yeah. one of the most <laughs> important jazz records of all time. Every jazz student has learned at least two of those songs in school. It's not there's nothing new, um, and yes, the new mastering is beautiful, but it, I think everyone at the label and myself we were just blown away at the demand because people want that object that they can hold and have a have it be a bigger part of their life than than mm-hmm. simply a stream. Although I love streaming and I'm streaming music all day and night and finding new things because you can, you know, because you literally go down these rabbit holes and just, um, discover, you know, it's, it's the best. So anyway, I think I I was on a rant too, but
0: no, no, those are all all good thoughts for sure. Yeah. It's almost like you're, you're uncovering these layers of like, I don't want, I hate to use the word tears, but just, you know, um elements of how you step through and become a fan in in a sense you know and it's it's that casual for lack of a better word casual element all the way through to you know whether it's purchasing a ticket buying some merch or buying a record you know you want to have some sort of physical tangible component to it yeah Um, And,
1: and at the top end for a living artist it would be getting a meet paying for a meet and greet you know
0: right experience.
1: Like having the experience, a once in a lifetime experience of getting to meet the artist. And even if you only meet them for a minute and take a photo and get an autograph, you still get to meet them. Um right. That to me would be the, the peak. But for other people, they don't, you know, I I'm one of those people. I don't necessarily want to meet my heroes. Um, but it's to to me that those are the different layers, you know, where you start mm-hmm. out and it's so you know, it's interesting, right now there's this big conversation of lean back playlists versus lean forward playlists. So mm. in the classical world, in the neoclassical world where I am doing some work these days, there are these lean back piano playlists and they get millions and millions and millions of streams for a track that can just sit in a playlist and people play it all day when they're working at home or working wherever and it's just nice right. in the background. And these lean back playlists are generating tons of money for these classical labels, but they're not creating fan bases, you know? Right. And my thought is can we take that and channel it into artist development? You know, so you Mm. say to that artist, okay, great, your last record streamed 100 million times, you made the label a bunch of money. So for your next album, you're going to get a much higher advance. Let's not pocket the advance. Let's use it to make an even better record. You know, let's let's yes, there'll be some solo piano pieces, but let's hire that insane string quartet that we saw on whatever TV show. Let's do this, let's do this, let's do this, let's let's our salon, like let's make a better record because you have this bass. Even though that bass doesn't exist, they're fans of the playlist, they're not fans of the artist. But can we use the success of the playlist to develop artists in ways they couldn't develop otherwise? I think that's an interesting proposition.
0: Yeah, yeah, it kind of It's a nice analogy towards what you were saying, people being fans of a festival, but maybe not an artist, same kind of gateway component. You know to it and and to take it even more granular granularly that's not a word to get it more granular with it <laughs> um i find a lot of people become fans of songs but not artists you know and that's another kind of leap you have to make you know in yeah. a single environment playlist environment it's like you have to go beyond that one song and and somehow get them to connect with an artist even if they don't never buy a record or listen to a record and whole I mean they have to at least be able to make that association and and hopefully get to a place to buy a ticket to a show at some point to hear that song
1: yeah and you have to and that artist has to tour you know anyone yeah. who's having their first song that's connecting that's where i think some people that i've worked with that that i don't work with anymore who have had that instant success with the song and they didn't get on tour fast enough and then the song's over and they never were able to make that connection. They're never more than a song on the radio or a song on a playlist. And it's, you know, a, a lot of the pop industry is built on that though. They're built on just, let's, you know, things happen on their own. It connects organically or algorithmically. It's pushing mm-hmm. the radio that pushes the stream more. Yay, we have a hit. It's not built for artist development. It never has been, you know. That's true. It never has been. And so... But as a manager, you as you were saying earlier, you have to do that. You have to say, okay, great. We have this. You're going to go on tour. I know it's only 300 cap rooms, but just go. Let's sell them out. Right. Let's have your first 300 fans in every city. You're even. We're going to take all your tour support and send you to Australia. And you're going to be mad when you see how much it costs you, but just do it. Because right. it's an investment. Get, it's an investment. You have to get in front of people. You have to get in front right. of people. Or, or you're just going to be a song on a playlist. You know.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, which there's a new one coming out next week. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it kind of, you know, kind of negates the uh, the opportunity. That that kind of leads nicely into uh, this whole conversation. Leads nicely into our our little lightning round of questions to kind of round things out. Um, yeah, like halfway through the first season, I was like, oh, how do I how do I end these? Uh, you know, kind of come in and land on these, and and like you were saying earlier, it's like you know. M- most of the people that we tend to gravitate towards are, are fans naturally uh, of music first and foremost, and pretty much anyone left in this industry is, I, is a fan of music at this point. Um, I wanted to put together at least some real casual, quick questions just to kind of get some insights. Uh, it's been super illuminating for me. So if you don't mind, I'm going to throw off a handful of questions here to get your initial uh, answer that come, you know, first comes to mind. Um, so what was the first record you ever bought?
1: tattoo you rolling stone oh really wow i still have it. great one i saw first single i ever bought was don't you want me by uh human league human league yeah. yeah It was 99 cents i still have that too great song Both, i mean both are great i was i was lucky
0: yeah those are good first choices um and i would argue and say as a stones fan that might be their their last really pretty solid and great record but I mean I think uh waiting on a friend is like as mm-hmm. good as anything in her catalog yeah uh, I agree and holds up over over the years and of course it also has Sonny Rollins playing sax on it too which makes it extra
1: special yeah uh, and, yeah no it's it it's a great and that record really holds up I mean I think we could have a whole separate conversation about the stones and I think I would disagree I, I even think that blues record they made last year was great so
0: yeah that's but, that's fair but as far as like original songs you know and, and funny enough T- tattoo you if i recall several of those songs were initially written and recorded during um, the previous record which was um, was it emotional rescue is that right is that the name of the record it might have- and yeah i think so i could be wrong my memory might be failing me but i and, and that has that's a very sonically a very dated record in a way and it was going for a certain thing a little disco yeah yeah a little bit but when you look at the songwriting at least on tattoo you I think those songs a lot of those songs hold up really really well oh yeah um, over the years so that's
1: that's a great one
0: um what was the first concert you attended
1: um the first concert I went to was the kinks Oh, wow. Which sounds cooler than I was. So um, (laughs) I won tickets. I called the radio. I just had the radio on. And it said, Mm -hmm. call whatever the phone number and the 10th caller wins tickets. I didn't even know what I was winning tickets to. I just called. And I won tickets. So that was my first concert. It was the Kinks. And this awesome local band from Chicago called The Shoes opened up. And I was so young. I didn't know that that wasn't the kinks. I didn't know that there were opening bands. Oh,
2: okay. So,
1: um, yeah, I mean, I grew up with a lot of music. I know this is, you're, well, you want me to go faster? but I grew up with a lot of m- music, but it was mainly folk music or classical music. You know, there oh, was okay. a lot of rock music in my family. Um, but Chicago had a big folk scene, you know, mm-hmm. Steve Goodman and John Prine and all that stuff. And, uh, my dad was really into Tom T. Hall. He was more of a country singer. Oh something. wow!
2: No. Yeah,
0: no, that's that's awesome. That's a great first concert, though. Oh, wow. I know.
1: I know. oh man. I mean, what we? I mean, if they could ever reunite and go to see the Kinks again, it'd be incredible. Just incredible.
0: Yeah, an artist uh, I, that I managed, Josh Rouse, um, Jim Pitt, and Annie McLennan and Jack Emerson, uh, that ran E Square, did a Kinks tribute record. Ray Davies tribute record, mm. and uh, they asked Josh to contribute a track for it. And uh, this was like I don't know, 15 years ago or, or more. And uh, I don't even know if it's still in in print or on streaming services, but it's a really great collection of Kink songs. But we got to meet Ray and spend some time around him. He was very generous um, oh, and amazing. got so many great songs. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what was the last show you saw?
1: The last show I saw was Soul Asylum. Yeah. yeah. They, they We had a tour that we ended up canceling a lot of the tour, but it was right before the shutdown. Um, they played LA. So I got, I saw them uh, three times on the tour before, before it got shut down for COVID. But yeah, I was here in LA at the Terragram. We had this band Local H opening, or we friends of mine from Chicago. Yeah. So it was just a great night you know not everybody came a lot of during that week a lot of people had tickets and didn't go because they were right. obviously concerned and, and justifiably so so it was it wasn't crowded which as a manager you want it to be crowded but i knew we sold out anyway so i didn't i wasn't stressing you know normally like if you're at a show and it's not sold out i just i just feel sick all night but right well, I'm, well, I'm waiting at the door to see if we're going to sell out and in this case i could just enjoy it and it wasn't full and it was a great set list so that was a great last show although yeah going to see them two days later but we had to cancel it for COVID. so
0: yeah yeah Yeah, it's a question i added in during COVID times
1: but what about you what was the last show you saw
0: so oddly enough, the last proper show I saw was Nathaniel Raylith oh, wow. uh, at the State Theater here, which was fantastic. It was the second night on that tour. He just started, just put the record out and started touring. And he did play to Bernie Sanders um, rally uh, the night before Super Tuesday. So I saw him there as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so it was a really good uh, good last show to go out on, but certainly missing live music as we all are. Oh, yeah. um, did he At have the moment. did he have the band
1: or was he solo?
0: No, he had the band. It was fantastic. Oh, um,
1: I need to see that band. I saw him solo on a live stream, um, a benefit for John Hickenlooper. And hmm. he was incredible. I mean, it was he and it weirdly, he sang into a Coles ribbon mic, which I know no one else is gonna care. But it's a mic that you use to record the like the boundaries of a room when you're micing drums. Okay. And Steve, right. I'm from Chicago, and Steve Albini used to import these every time he'd go to England, he'd bring them back so he could use them. And you know, you had to know Steve if you wanted to get a Coles Rhythm mic. And now you could just buy them, but. You know, to sing, and we actually, I actually got those ribbon mics on the uh, the Second Creed album. I convinced them to use it, and uh, oh, really? Was, yeah, that was funny. But um, but yeah, he was singing into one, and and I thought, what what in the world? It's twenty only in twenty twenty would you sing into a an overhead mic, but he sounded amazing.
0: Yeah, he's got an amazing voice. I really love this new record, and it it sounded phenomenal live. I remember talking to Chris, his manager, afterwards, and they are like, hey, well, how was the show? How did you feel? I was like, I thought it was... I mean, for a second night, you know, he did two nights here. I went on the second night, and it just it felt dialed in. It felt relaxed, and yeah. It's funny, you know, you don't think about that when you go to see bands. It's never great, usually, to see the first night of a show or of a tour, you know, because it's like, you know, they're working the kinks out. Yeah. and And seeing the last night can can be either amazing or also kind of like depending on how long they've been on the road and where they're at you know Um,
2: yeah it could
0: be Yeah. yeah just depending on you know the band like i got to see wilco finish up a run of dates here um a couple of years back and it, it was a pretty pretty great show but i mean every band's different you know with that yeah. you know it's like usually seeing them like two or three weeks in if they're doing like a multiple month tour is like seems like the sweet spot where it's still special yeah and, uh, and whatnot but um, i was really taken aback at just how great that band and nathaniel sounded it was definitely a good show to go out on oh awesome,
1: uh, in awesome.
2: yeah
0: so what have you heard recently we talked a little bit about all the great music has come out uh, it feels like at least this year but what have you heard recently just just been kind of a discovery point for you it's really kind of getting under your skin
1: that you would like to maybe share you know i for me it's a, it's a hard question for me because i it's every day right so so that yeah. question to me I, I would just have to say oh man like today i really got into uh, Keith Jarrett, you know he just announced that he had a stroke and, and may never be able to play again. so oh, yeah. I've been listening to a lot of Keith Jarrett the last couple of days but you know every day is different. I listen to this incredible uh, like jazz cello player named Anya Lechner but hmm. if you ask me in two weeks I wouldn't I wouldn't mention her maybe you know um, I've been really into harp music, people doing, recordings on harp that weren't written for a harp. Like this guy did the Goldberg Variations um, on a harp arrangement that I thought was super interesting. Um, And there's this oud player named Anwar Brahim That is, and it's, you know, why? Why do I need to really dig deep into this Tunisian (laughs) oud player? I don't know, but I love it. I just love it, you know? so i guess that's the kind of stuff that i've been into lately
2: <laughs> no that's, that's
0: awesome that's fascinating that is a hard question to answer uh for myself as well um so w- one last one here uh what else do you really like to get into and do um like what brings you
1: joy or do you enjoy the most outside of music I my family that's easy you know i have a wife yeah. and two kids so that's That's, you know, that's it, you know, my family and, you know, close friends. And, um, although that's weird during COVID, but I I read Mm. a lot, watch a lot of documentaries, you know, but mainly, mainly music, you know, mainly music. I've listened to so much music. Um, yeah. yeah, I I try to get my kids to like last night I tried to introduce my kids to Bruce Springsteen, you know, with his new record that came out today. So try to explain to them why he is one of America's greatest songwriters. So I'll I'll have to fill you in if that's going to work or not.
0: Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Um, I've been talking about that record too. I mean, when, uh, when the single came out, letter to you, I was just like, Oh my God, this sounds so good. I know. I mean, to, to, to be able to, and I haven't watched the documentary yet. I'm anxious to watch that this weekend. Um, around the you know the filming of of the record um and recording of it but for that band to be able to play and sing and and do that live and the the level of songwriting and you know i mean all of them are getting up there you know springsteen 71 i mean to be able to you know dylan's proven to do that too and i think you know neil young has his moments you know maybe not as consistently just because he puts out so much music on a regular basis but Uh, Yeah, it it is incredibly heartwarming and encouraging to know that that can still exist out there.
1: Yeah, it's a big part of my work, you know, is working with bands that I think are making their best records at this point in their career. You know, Mm -hmm. I I think Liz did it, I think Soul Asylum did it this year. Um, And then to hear Dylan and Springsteen make some of their best records now is wild.
2: Yeah, Uh, it it
0: definitely shows that there's opportunity, you know, with focus and I guess um, encouragement and just a spark of, you know, wanting to scratch that surface again of something that's unique and new. Um, I also find it really interesting, like I think of a band like Dinosaur Jr., who I think Puts out pretty consistently, you know, good records that are very much in line with what they've always done. It doesn't sound, doesn't feel like they're pandering back to, you know, their heyday. But yet, it's just equally as, as good in ways. Or um, even the mask,
1: the Jay Maskis solo record last year was incredible. Incredible. Yeah, you know, and um, and that like I bought tickets to go see him. I didn't go. You know, it was late on like a Tuesday night, and it's an out. LA is so big. I didn't want to drive yeah. an hour. What, like, really, I'm not going to drive an hour to see Jaymas? I remember once I drove six hours to see Jayma, to see or Jr., and now I'm old and I'm not going to drive an hour? Come on. I'm never doing that. I'm never missing that again. You know.
0: Yeah, that's true. I think about that a lot now. There's been numerous times too where I've been like, oh, it's just too, I can't do it. I can't go out. I always regret not going to a show and I never regret when I do go to a show. And I have to remind myself of that. And I I won't anymore moving forward just for the obvious reasons, but man,
1: that's so true. It's like the butthole surfer said, it's better to regret something you have done than something you haven't done. Right. No. that's something I'll that's tell not. my kids Actually, I'll tell my kids the opposite but when it comes to seeing <laughs> bands it's true
0: <laughs> oh, that's a great way to wrap this up <laughs> no, no than that uh, both as a music fan a manager and a parent
1: exactly that's, right. that's it that's, that's it oh, well thank you so much for this yeah Chris thank you this was awesome I appreciate it
0: Many thanks to Joel for his insights and perspectives today. Thanks also to Tony Miracle of Venus Home for our theme music and to Greg Doby Hall for his support as well. If you're so inclined, please rate us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Tough Love Pod. That's T-O-U-G-H-L-O-V-P-O-D. And above all, share this podcast with all your friends and fellow music industry and artist communities. It takes a village. You can reach us at Chris at Anadonia Management. That's C-H-R-I-S at A-N-H-E-B-O-N-I-A-M-G-M-T dot com. Be well, trip up, get back up, and let's all learn as we go. Until next time.